Let's move on. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is about halfway through your New Testament. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. Um, We've been working through over the last four weeks um, looking at this subject of the resurrection and particularly building up to today, uh, Resurrection Sunday. So Ludo began this series and was talking about the evidence for the resurrection, the reasons that uh, we as Christians can have uh, a very firm conviction that the resurrection happened and also a brilliant argument for you if you're not a believer in Jesus that's probably going to be one of the main stumbling blocks for you. One of the main reasons you might not believe in Jesus would be the fact that Christians believe that he rose from the dead. And Ludo's talk from a few weeks ago just brilliantly outlines the, the evidence and the arguments that that did actually happen, that what we believe isn't just a myth and a fable or a story, but is true. And not only that, it's the one truth that changes everything about our lives and our existence. And then we spent the last few weeks looking at some of the benefits for us of the resurrection. What does it mean for us, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, to know this resurrection? And we're going to focus um, on one verse today, but what we've been doing as well, we've been using this uh, bit from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me try and move out of the way. So we've been going through this week by week. So how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? That's the question. And then week one, we said first... By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too were already raised to a new life. And then third, which we'll look at a bit more today, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. And particularly, we're going to use this verse from 1 Corinthians to help us. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we can gather today in this beautiful building on this beautiful day, Uh, but we celebrate the most beautiful day in all of creation when you rose from the, the dead, when you defeated death, when you won this great victory for us. We thank you that beautiful story we can read about in the Gospels where uh, uh, the, the women and your disciples go to find you and you're not there. There's just an empty tomb. And we don't come to a graveyard today. We don't come to mourn and to weep. But we come to an empty tomb. We come to a risen Savior who's alive today and full of power and working with that power in our lives. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and work amongst us that your resurrection power would be at work within us to change our hearts, to become more like you, we pray. Amen. Amen. There's um, a group of billionaires in the United States, I think probably also around the world as well, who are uh, investing in all sorts of different programs all sorts of different uh, possibilities for them to uh, either increase their lifespan or to somehow defeat death altogether so that they can somehow live forever. And one of the founders of Google, who's invested 
$1 billion in a company called the Longevity Lab. Um, and his aim is, is that he literally wants to live forever. That's his stated goal that he's publicly said. He's investing billions into this organization so that he might be able to live forever. The, um, uh, Peter Thiel, who's the founder of PayPal, I don't know if this is true, but it's reported that he gets um, blood transfusions, transfusions from young people so he can suck in their blood as a way of him living forever. So there you go. You didn't realize when you used PayPal that you were funding a vampire, basically. <laughs> but that's what's happening. And there are all sorts of people doing things like this. There's a company in Arizona who, where you can, you can pay to preserve your entire body. If you pay, I think it's $150,000, they will preserve your body in liquid nitrogen. So 150 people have done this already. Or if you don't have that much, I think it's 80,000 and you can just preserve your head. Um, so Joe and I don't have that much money, but we've put a small down payment on just my thumb. We're just going to put my thumb in there, and then who knows, medical science in a couple hundred years later, they might be able to, like in Jurassic Park, kind of make me anew just from my thumb into some kind of human dinosaur creature. That's not going to happen, so don't worry. I've not, that wasn't true, actually. I've not, my thumb isn't going to be frozen forever. I think we should move on, don't you? But one of the reasons that people do this is this, I think it's almost an instinctive desire in all of us uh, to live forever, to have our own eternity, our own immortality, that nobody wants to die, nobody wants to come to, to an end. Even, even the thought of death is something we don't normally spend a lot of time dwelling on or thinking about particularly in the culture which we live in, we don't really have much opportunity to even embrace death. To even see it happening, if we'd lived 100 or 200 years ago, death would have been a much more common feature of our lives. Brothers, sisters, children, parents. By the time you were my age, you probably would have seen many people die, and yet, for me, that's not been the story of my life, by the grace of God. Nowadays, we're, we're kind of protected, we're, we're insulated from the pain and the grief that happens when people die. We just don't see it so much anymore. There's a philosopher called Ernest Becker. He wrote this book called The Denial of Death, and he basically makes the argument in the book that all of human existence is basically driven, is built around the denial of death. Of there's something instinctive within us that doesn't want to think about it, but does want to live forever. That we've got this thing inside of us. And I guess if you were a cynic here this morning, you could argue that that's what religion is about. Surely that's what all world religions promise, is somehow if you do the right things, if you tick the right boxes, there might be some sort of magical formula that you can complete, which means you've completed the game, and when it comes to game over, that somehow you can live forever. You could argue, well, that's just the kind of false promise of religion, perhaps. 
just another way that we deny death. But if that's true, if that kind of atheist, humanistic answer is correct and that actually religion is just all a big false promise and that when you die it's just the end, just final, nothing, you know, just the lights go off. We don't like to think about that, do we? Particularly not on Easter Sunday. You think, this is not what I came to church for, to think about death. But we don't want to think about that. I think there's a reason that we don't want to think about that, is because actually, we're, in a way, we're not really, there's something inside us that argues against it, because I don't think we are made to die. I just don't think that's how God created us. If you read the Bible story, actually what happens in the very beginning is that God creates humanity for life. That's what he's made us for, for life. For life with him. That's the very definition of what it is to have life, is to have life with God. He didn't create us to fade away to be frail, to eventually just become weak and die. That's not how God originally created us. That just wasn't in his plan. That's not what God was trying, to, was trying to work out. That's probably a question that we should ask is, well, what is death? Death is not God's plan. Jesus says in John that Jesus said that I came to bring life and life in abundance. That's what Jesus came to restore, was life to his creation, to his people, to humanity. And human life has been designed to function forever in trust, in fellowship, in relationship with God. But what happens, if you read the beginning of the Bible, is that humanity decides that's not the way that it wants to live. It decides actually it can have a better life, it can have more of life if it actually turns its back on God. That God becomes the limiting factor, this oppressive force that's crushing them down. And actually if they trust in themselves, in their own instincts, in their own pride, in their own self-reliance, then they can have life. They can be like God themselves. And that's the route that they take. You can read about it in the first few chapters of Genesis. That's the plan that they try and follow up, that they decide that humanity is better off without God. That to trust in him is inferior and actually they should just trust in themselves. In my notes here, I've actually got a typo. I didn't write, they should trust in themselves. I wrote, they should trust in elves. Yes. Don't do that either. <laughs> but that's, even today, that's, that's how we try and live. To trust in ourselves. That's the promise that not only the world around us tells us, but that's the promise we tell ourselves all the time. This promise of self-reliance, that I can fix this, that 
I can make the most of my life, that if only I can get more control over myself, then somehow that's the ideal, the perfect solution. It's the whole story of the world around us is telling us, just make the most of your own life. Live for the betterment of yourself. You've got the answer somehow within you. And it's just the very first original sin that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. It's just pride. It's just sinful pride to somehow believe that we know best, that we live best independently. And actually there is, with that sin, there's a, there's a result to that sin. It says in Romans chapter six, the wages of sin is death. That's partly what death is, just the final result of sin. See, at the, at the very heart of whatever sin we might talk about, at the very heart of it is a, is a pride, is, is a self-reliance. This will make me happy, and I know it will. This is best for me, and I know it is. It's just pride. It's us putting ourselves as an equal or even better than God. We just remove him out of the equation and we put us in that place. It's just a sinful pride at the end of the day. And what death does is it, it kind of undoes that. Death is how God is saying to us, it doesn't work. This desire, even though all these billionaires have, that somehow they can live forever, that somehow if we just invest, if we get the right chemicals, the right compounds, if we somehow create this magic formula, we can have eternity. If I somehow make the right choices in my life, if I somehow do this and that, I can make the best of things. Death is essentially God drawing a line under all of that and saying, no, you can't. No, you can't. There's an end. There's a final end where that self-reliance will die, where we suddenly become aware of our own weakness, our own vulnerability. See, death is the final truth dismantles that lie of self-reliance. The thing is that we need to hear is that we're not enough, that we need God. And death is the final reminder that that's true. The writer uh, Dara Horn in the magazine a few years ago, she said that death is the ultimate vulnerability we don't like to think of ourselves as weak and vulnerable, but we are. We're all dying. Some of us are further along in the process than others. But we're all vulnerable. There's weakness in all of us. And there's an end coming that we might try and avoid and stay away from and try and fill our lives with things 
to argue against that. Death is also, the Bible says, the final enemy. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's the enemy that you can't defeat. You know, when you get to the end of the, well, at least in the computer games I used to play in the 1990s, you get to the final level, and there's always one beast that you have to, you know, tap all the buttons at once and create some fireball that's going to explode them out. And you can't, you know, that's, that's how these games play. There's always, you get to a stage and you can't get past it and you have to go back and start the game again. There's a final enemy that we can't get past. It's death. You might try and invest billions, you might try and freeze your head to avoid it, but we can't defeat that. And ultimately, death is, we were talking about this a few weeks ago, death is, is separation. If you really want to try and define what it is, the atheist humanistic answer would be death is just the end. Death is when the lights go off. But I think death is actually, the Bible teaches a, a separation. A separation from God. Because God is where life is where joy is, where light, hope, peace, all of that emanates from God. It all comes from him. And death is just a separation from God. That's what it is to be alive, to be fully, truly alive, is to know God. Actually, I think death... I'm talking about it in quite a negative sense. But even the idea of you dying is actually, doesn't have to be a bad thing. There's a, a, what might appear initially a confusing verse in Ecclesiastes, which says the day you die is better than the day you were born. Which sounds like the lyric from a particularly depressing heavy metal song, doesn't it? But there's a beautiful truth there. That, as we'll go on to see later, there is a wonderful, beautiful opportunity even in the day that we die. But even the looking ahead towards that can be a wonderfully releasing and empowering thing. To, to know that you're, you're going to die is, is actually a beautiful thing because when we really prepare how to die, we learn how to live. When we really recognize that we're mortal, that there's an end coming, it releases us into a new kind of fervency of, of life. A writer called David Gibson, he said, dying people who truly know they are dying are among all people the most alive. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you have almost like a near-death experience, where suddenly you feel like you've looked death in the face, and you've had to really contemplate your own mortality, and it can give you a sense of freedom, a sense of, man, it, uh, it is coming. There is going to be an end to this life that I'm living now. I want to make the most of it. I want to enjoy it. I want to use all of it as I can 
to worship and honor God. If we set our minds on that, actually that can be a releasing thing, a helpful thing. As well, death can give us a, death gives us perspective. Because with death, we begin to realize that pain, sickness, illness, suffering, hardship, the depression, the anxiety that you're feeling, the worry, the guilt, all of that's temporary. When you begin to see your life as a short span of time compared to all of eternity that God's laid aside for you. It gives you a fresh perspective on the pain that you're walking through. Because for a lot of you, the, the difficulty with your pain will be, whatever it is, is that it can quite easily become an all-consuming thing that, that dominates your horizon. It's like a cloud over all of your life. But when you begin to realize that it's a, it's a temporary thing, that the Bible promises us that in eternity with God, there isn't any pain anymore. When we get hold of that, we think, well, this small thing that's become this massive thing over all my life doesn't have to dominate me. It, it puts pain in its place. I'm not saying that to belittle what you're going through, the struggles that you might be facing, but if that's the thing that defines you, that will fill your horizon. But when you realize that there's an eternity ahead for you, it suddenly it shrinks it down <laughs> into this thing you think, it might still be an issue in my life, but this doesn't have to control me. God's called me to a better way to live. And I can put this in its perspective, in its right place of what it really means. Paul said in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If anybody in the Bible knows about suffering, it would be the Apostle Paul. He faced it. People attacking him. Even some of the churches that he planted, that at least for seasons, turned against him. Were telling everybody to not listen to Paul. Were telling people that he was a liar. These people that he loved and cared for. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was attacked. But yet he knew that there was something of gain, something better that was on his horizon that he could live for. And as well, we can see that death enters us into eternity. Death, for you, if you're a believer in Jesus, it's not the end. That death in many ways is just the gateway where God steps us into a new future with him. For the believer, that's really what death is. It doesn't mean it won't be painful and you won't want to grieve for the person that's gone when you're left behind. Grief is a real painful, bitter thing that we don't want to just ignore and just kind of make a kind of put a kind of happy cloud over it. But at the same time, there's, if you've ever been to the funeral of a believer in Jesus, 
There's pain and there's grief and sadness, but there's such a beautiful, blissful celebration of, yes, they've gone to a better place. Jesus has called them home. Home. And we don't have to see death as the final enemy anymore. Because for us to die just wasn't how God intended it to be. See, death on one hand is God's judgment against the sin in our lives on a sinful, fallen humanity. But on the other hand, as believers in Jesus, we can see death as this beautiful gateway into glory with him, eternity with him. In John 11, Jesus says this very profound statement. He says, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's true for us. Though we will die, yet we will live. Because Jesus has come, the resurrection and the life, to call us into this wonderful new future that he's laid aside for us. And we can believe now that death doesn't have the final word. The writer Mark Twain said, death is the great leveler. And he was wrong. He was wrong. Yes, we all face death. But it doesn't have to be the end. Death is now wonderfully been transformed. It says in 1, in 2 Timothy, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And that's what Easter is really all about. On Good Friday, we see Jesus' death. But we know as believers in him that somehow, somehow even slightly beyond our human comprehension, somehow we died with him. We've been born again to this new life, raised with him, with a beautiful inheritance laid aside for us. And how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, it says in Revelation, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but there'll be priests of God and of Christ. See, the Bible uses language of the second death, that there's a human bodily physical death, but there's also the death of our judgment but the Bible teaches now that Jesus faced that second death for us that he was judged for us so that we don't have to face that anymore that instead of judgment is exchanged for us life life now That might all seem perhaps a bit mystical to you, a bit bizarre. And you might say, I want want proof. Where's where's the proof 
that I can know this. But what we see is actually that it's the resurrection itself which is the proof we need. It says, in, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That phrase, the first fruits, it means like, like a, a, a down payment, you know? Here, when you buy a house in the Netherlands, you have to put a down payment down, the 10% of the value of the property, which 10% if you're buying a chocolate bar isn't a lot. When you're buying a house, that's a lot of money. So when you pay that down payment, you will fulfill that. Because <laughs> like, if you don't, then that's gone. You don't get that back. So Jesus' resurrection is, is, a, is a down payment. It's a pledge. It's God saying to all of us, how do you know that you will have your own resurrection? You'll be called into this beautiful new eternal life. How do you know? Because Jesus has already done that. That he was this first fruit, this pledge, this guarantee that now we can have certainty that death is defeated. That death is defeated. That death couldn't hold Jesus. That the wages of sin that would should hold humanity into death that's been broken now by Jesus who lived this perfect sinless life died for us and took everything upon himself that we deserve he took it upon himself and then rose again and we can see our victory in that wonderful moment it says in 1 Corinthians Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is the song that all believers get to sing in our hearts now. We can look death in the face and not lead it in, let, let it lead us into fear or worry, but we can look death in the face and say, Where is your victory? Where is your sting? What harm can you cause me now? Because for the believer in Jesus, death is dead. It's defeated. It's gone. In Jesus, now we have life, fullness of life. Jesus died in our place so that we would never feel the force of what death was intended to be this eternal separation from God. Instead, we get called into perfect, restored fellowship with God. In the same way that God made Adam and Eve to walk in the garden with him, to enjoy him, to have fellowship with him for eternity. He's called us now. One day he's going to make us all anew going to restore these physical broken bodies. You won't just be like this ghost out there in the sky. He'll give you a real body, just like the one you have now, but a perfect body. No sickness, no illness, no pain, no worry, no fear. All these things that haunt your lives will be gone. 
and all because of what Jesus has done for us. There's nothing you can earn or you can do to guarantee this. It's guaranteed for you, believer, because of what Jesus has done. So it means on Resurrection Sunday, we get to come and celebrate this beautiful, wonderful truth. But no, it's true for us. It's not just true about him, it's true for you. I don't know if you saw this week of the the fire in the Notre Dame Cathedral in in France. I don't know if you saw the beautiful picture that that photographer took the next morning. I don't know how he got in the building. There's still, you can see a bit of smoke rising from the roof that had fallen in. In the center is, is the cross with this, like a sunbeam coming through the hole in the roof, just illuminating it. <laughs> this beautiful picture that we don't come to the cross and just see a broken cathedral burnt out and a mess and destruction and death. We come to the cross of Jesus and we find that he's not there. <laughs> we come to the empty tomb, he's not there either. It's this shining beacon of hope and life that shines out. I think that's what that picture was. That went all over the world this week. Millions of people saw it. It was God again just whispering to his creation, I'm alive. This is where you find your hope, your joy, your satisfaction is in him. Let's pray. If you just want to stand to your feet, in a moment, we'll take communion together, but I just want to pray first. Jesus, we know that sometimes these things can be difficult for our heads to understand. But we want to look upon the resurrection and see that as our, as our down payment, as our sure pledge that you've laid aside, you've set aside in the future something for us beautiful and perfect, that for those of us here that are believers in you, that we don't have to face that second death of judgment, that final separation from you, but we get this beautiful future, eternity with you set aside, and we look upon your resurrection and we can see it as a great, the great victory And it wasn't just your great victory, it was our great victory. We can know that all our enemies have been defeated. Of death, the devil, sin, they've all been defeated now. And we stand on that good of that wonderful promise, that wonderful hope we have in you this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Amen.